Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Let us consider one another unto the stimulating of love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the ethos, the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is to be a functional part of the body of Christ. And uh, we know from the scriptures in a couple of places, Paul talks about that every one of you who's a believer in Jesus Christ has a spiritual gift. We know from Ephesians chapter four that those with spiritual gifts are themselves a gift from the Lord Jesus to his body for the building up of the body of Christ, the edifying of the saints to love and good works to what God has for us to do, the ministry of service. And that's why we're going to spend time today in Ephesians chapter one. It's a supernatural undertaking and it's something that I've noticed. If I tell you a story, if I tell you the story of Jonah and I will soon, not today, if I tell you the story of Jonah this fall, you know, say while we're teaching a course in the exegesis of Jonah in seminary. And so I happen to teach you a series on the book of Jonah, maybe, or something like that happens. It's a story and it can be compelling because of the narrative and the kids really respond to it. I notice as I tell you the story of Joseph, you, you, it's tra you're tracking because it's compelling and dramatic. But as I tell you the doctrinal content in Paul's letters, like in Colossians, it's a little bit of a different response. It's a different type of literature. In Exodus 20, you're given a summary by God about what he expects for national Israel to live as his covenant nation, the Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. It's legal language. In the book of Deuteronomy, you're given a treaty, a document that's a treaty between nations, between God and, and Israel. And it works like that. In the Gospels, you have a narrative developed to, by the, by the, each specific writer to tell the ministry life of Jesus through the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus so that the reader will understand who Jesus is. And you have all the pieces that go together in that progressive revelation within the Gospels. In the prophets of the scriptures, you have a lot of poems that are oracles or prophetic statements from God about his judgment on Israel and the other nations. And you have to deal with that in a poetic sense because it's art, it's set up as poetry. In the Psalms, you have songs. And to preach a song means thinking through what it means and how it's structured. But in the letters of the Apostle Paul and Peter and James and John, you don't have a story. There's a story Paul is living, just like you're living a story. You don't have a poem. Generally, some of it is poetic, like in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. There's some poetic sense of how he does it. What you have is teaching. It's doctrine. All of Scripture is given for our instruction in righteousness. But what you have in the letters of Paul is the distilled spirits of doctrine that... Um, you really have to think on. You kind of have to chew on and reflect on. And here's the thing. Until you get a taste for that 
very fine and aged spirit until you get a sense a flavor for that doctrinal content the way it's presented logically to reason to train our thinking i mean it's the mathematics section of the scriptures the paul's letters until you get a sense of that it's going to be challenging challenging for you to stay focused on it it really is because every time paul says a sentence he then says a therefore or a or a, and, and and so the next thought and think it through and the book of Ephesians works this way, and it's very challenging in our day and age, in our postmodern culture, to let the Bible just tell us proposition after proposition after logical relationship after proposition. And some of you are math nerds and you like that. Some of us have an acquired taste to be math nerds and we've come to appreciate it. But I challenge you that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write every word that he wrote. The Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write every word that he wrote. All right, so you two are up here. This is an interactive Bible class. You two are up here. Everyone heard it twice now. By two witnesses, all things will be confirmed. Sit down. The, the epistles are a challenge is what I'm telling you. And God, the Holy Spirit knows that. I just can't do it. I can't think. I can't concentrate. I can't deal with this logical flow. That's arrogance, which means we're thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Like we know our limitations better than God does. The Holy Spirit gave you Ephesians so you'll know the riches of the glorious inheritance that you have in Jesus Christ. And to say, I love the Lord and not reconcile what God says about him in Ephesians is to be a, a walking contradiction. I love the Lord, but I don't know him very well. Isn't going to cut it. And we desperately need what the apostle Paul has given us so that we'll know our savior and we'll know our so great salvation so that we'll know him on his terms. And this means the Holy Spirit really needs to be our teacher. It's a supernatural deposit of revelation it requires a supernatural apparatus. God's spirit working in us to know God on his terms. And that's spiritual knowledge. That's pneumaticos in first Corinthians two. And the unbeliever has no access to, to that, not the propositions, but to what it does in us to conform us to Christ. So let's take a moment for silent prayer, truly seeking the filling of the spirit. We want God, the Holy Spirit this morning to fill us with the word and not be distracted and not disregard the riches of our inheritance in Christ. As we'll read in Ephesians chapter one, let's pray. Our father, the uh, prophet Moses wrote it in your spirit's inspiration. And the Lord Jesus said it, quoted him in your spirit's inspiration. Man will not live by bread alone, but, but instead by every word that proceeds from your mouth, from the mouth of God. Let us not disregard the riches of your grace in our inheritance as we come to the scriptures today. But rather, father, I ask as Paul will ask. that you will give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of your son, that the eyes of our hearts, Father, that will be enlightened so that we'll know what is the hope of your calling, the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints, what's the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of your might, which you brought about in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand 
in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Father, help us to think your thoughts after you in this hour. Give us a a laser focus on the riches of our inheritance. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I told you first hour we're doing Ephesians in six Sundays. This is chapter one. It's the long sentence, Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14. In Greek, there are no periods and Greek scholars will tell you it's one sentence. One sentence with many connectives that put it all together. In your English Bible, it is broken into many sentences because that's bad English grammar to have a run-on sentence that never ends. It's like someone hit the, um, the dictate button on your phone, your little dictate uh, icon, and you didn't know it and you just kept talking and just kept running on and on. That's what this long sentence looks like. But what it is, as we've said in summary, is a listing of what God has done and is doing on your behalf, God the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ. What God the Father is doing on your behalf through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it begins in verse three and it says, blessed be, that means worthy of praise and glorification, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're Trinitarians. We believe in God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who the Father, who has blessed us, that's what he's done, with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. What has he done for me lately? There's nothing that he hasn't done for us. And this is the thought that we need to keep before us. Am I reflecting on what God has actually done, the benefits I have of my relationship with him? And that's what Ephesians will keep doing. Don't get in a rut. Don't think you've moved beyond this. We'll never move beyond the fact that God through Christ has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. What does that mean? I think it's eschatological. It's what's coming. It's what you stand to enjoy in the end, which is forever, the new heavens, new earth. I believe that's what he's talking about when he says every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. In verse four, just as he chose us in him, let me put it in color. We're, we're tracing the colors of the various themes in the, in the chapter. Just as he, the father chose us, that's what God did. He chose us in Christ. What's the nature of Christian election? It's in Christ. It doesn't say he chose us to be in Christ. It says he chose us in Christ. As in we who are in Christ, he chose. And I believe it is because if we're in Christ, we share the election, the choosing of Christ the father's appointment of him for his rule. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. When did God have you personally in mind? From before the foundation of the world. The whole plan has always been in place. Wait a second, even the hardships, yes, God is working all things together for those who love him. Even the the sins that people committed, yeah, God knew about those. That's called foreknowledge, to know beforehand. He did not foredo those things that are wickedness, but he knew about them, and yet history is constantly being worked together, even the wicked things, for good. Where's a good example in the Bible of people being sinful and doing the things they shouldn't be doing, and God using those things to advance his sovereign purpose of blessing and uh, grace. Where do we find a story like that? Anybody? In the Bible, where God is allowing sinful men to do what they want and is using those actions, not causing them, using them to bring about his glorious purpose in Christ. Where's a place in the Bible where you see that? In Egypt? The the Pharaoh? Okay. Okay. Which, which Bible character? Joseph. Okay, there's one Egypt. Were you thinking Joseph and Pharaoh? 
Or are you thinking Pharaoh and, uh, and Moses? Mo, the, the mo, both of those. Moses, what God, what God is doing. Now, God hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh hardened his own. There's a... Right, Joseph in slavery. Exactly. I got one for you. How about the cross? I recently read a book by a former Fox newscaster about the killing of Jesus. Bill O'Reilly. I was challenged to read it because I had read a review of it that said it's a little bit humanistic. And uh, so someone said, well, have you read it? I said, no, I'll read it. It was humanistic. <laughs> I mean, the guy's at best a Catholic, I guess. I don't know. I don't really know what he is. But theologically, he's not my source, my go-to source, okay? But his point was, look, look at all the, the political machinations that got Jesus crucified. There's truth in this. How did uh, Judas, uh, and what power did Judas betray Jesus? Satan entered Judas and it was, and Judas went out and it was night. And then Judas told the temple guards where Jesus could be found and betrayed him with a kiss. So you know, COVID-19 was still bad, right? The kiss that betrays Jesus. So that kiss, as far as Judas is concerned, kind of sets things in motion for all the political machinations that crucify our savior. Did God cause Judas to betray Jesus? No. You see, this is a complicated reality we live in. But God is sovereign, and he used that because he is going to judge the Son for our sins on that Roman cross. And it's even Satan's acts that are involved in getting Jesus on the cross. This is, this is the idea. Now, people have taken Ephesians 1 and said, look, um, God is sovereign, and that means that if man is making any true decisions that are free of his own, then God can't be sovereign. And you um, people that disagree with our determinism have to acknowledge you, you're, you're not submitting to God's authority. And that's, um, that's the worst of all reformed reasoning. It's not valid reasoning. It's just emotionalism, in my opinion. I'm pretty emotional about that. Now, um, the, the truth is that the sovereign God we serve is dealing in an infinite space of his own reality. And we, as an adjunct of that, are part of a limited sphere of how he has us living. And our decisions are not in the same plane of reality as the infinite creator who is working all things after the counsel of his will from eternity past. That's to me the answer on is man free or is God sovereign? The answer is yes. And doesn't contradict God's sovereignty because the only possibility of a contradiction is if you bring God down to our level or if you idiotically elevate man to God's level and both of those are wrong. In other words, the creator creature distinction is the answer for how these two doctrines can be compatible. But Ephesians chapter one is not talking about these things. It's not even about this. What Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14 is talking about is that you have riches from the grace of God because there is a beautiful relationship between God, the father and God, the son. And that relationship has these dividends that you are benefiting from that make you and me glorious to him. It makes us glorify God. We get to be part of of the, I want to say the reflection of the glory that exists in the rapport between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We are brought in to this fellowship and it has yielded these dividends, such as in verse four, he, he chose us in Christ, in him, before the foundation of the world so that, and here's the reason why he elected us or chose us, so that we would be holy and blameless before him, before God the Father. 
That's the reason why. You're like, well, wait, wait, wait. No, he chose us because of his elective, sovereign, eternal. It doesn't say what he was thinking or what is his motivation to do it, except that this is what he wants. In other words, he does, it doesn't say why he didn't choose someone else. It just says he chose you because he wants you to be holy and blameless before him. See what I mean? In other words, the, the Arminian Calvinism, determinism, indeterminism, monergism, synergism stuff isn't solved in Ephesians chapter one. It isn't addressed really because it doesn't say why he did what he did. He says he chose it. Now, now, if you want to be a rank Arminian and say, if he chose me, then I'm not making my choices. And so I'm not free. Therefore, I don't believe the Bible or we have to explain away this language to mean something that it doesn't mean. That would be a mistake. I think it would be to deny the richness of the scriptures. It also means that things are more complicated than we want them to be. I'm going to quit talking about this uh, age old soteriological argument and just say that God is mysterious in terms of his infinite being. And uh, this is all cause for rejoicing. I've always put in this passage, I put an orange, the things that we get, the, the benefits that are dividends from this giving from the father okay, through the son to us. We would be holy and blameless before the father. But by the way, one thing you have to conclude is that God wants you, but it's gonna be on his terms. The reason he chose you is so that through his sanctifying work, you would be acceptable to him and he could have you for himself. God wants you in verse four. God wants you. In verse five, by appointing us beforehand, I've not translated predestinating because that's a theologically, or I should say philosophically laden, fatalistic term that probably doesn't reflect what Paul's talking about, what the word meant in the first century. It actually proorizo would be a, an appointment beforehand. Somehow before, beforehand, there was an appointment. And the appointment in this specific instance is adoption. Roman adoption declared heirs, the sons of God, by appointing us beforehand unto adoption, one of our benefits that we get because of Jesus from the Father. And the way he did it is through Jesus Christ and the person who is adopting us is not Jesus, it's the Father. You see the, see the connection? We are fellow heirs with Christ, fellow sons of God, not in the sense of God the Son and his deity, but in the sense of having Abba, God the Father, as our Father. This is what he's talking about for believers, as we'll read. And this was all according to the good pleasure or the kind intention, the eudokia of his will, his preference, what he wanted, what God wanted. This is what God wants. He wants you and he wanted you as his child, as his designated heir. You weren't just born into the family. You've been appointed the heir and you were done so before the foundation of the world in Christ. Unto the praise of the glory of his grace. This was what it really goes to. What, what are we here for? What's my life about? Satisfying me is not the reason I am here. To enjoy the moment and be diverted. That's not why I'm here. It's so much better. That's not good enough. To please me is to elevate me in my own heart to deity, to be the one being served. And that's insane. And if you say it that way, everybody's like, that's kind of crazy. But we do it. We slip into it. That's, that's what sin does. And see, the culture you live in is basically dispensed with the concept of sin. Sin means there'd have to be a God if you've offended. And so since that can't be the case as our cultural set, well, I mean, show me, show me God. Where is he? Right? Well, if he's not, 
um, the creator who has made everything that is, and you see, as you look at the vastness of space, you say, God must be really big if he's bigger than the vastness of, of space. If this is the God that we're talking about, then I don't see him, but I see his effects. I see his footprints. I see his things. And so the culture is godless and it obviously has to elevate man to God's status because they're going to worship something. So opt out. You are to be salt and light in the culture, but not of the culture, in the world, but not of the world. You don't belong to the world. You belong to your savior. And that's what we're talking about. Under the, pra the praise of his glory, that's why we're here. And the praises of the glory of God's grace, I put, put that in green because uh, this theme will happen several times, with which he graced us. He, the father, it's dark blue because God did it. He graced us. God's grace is from God to us. When we grace God, if we use this language, karis or karitao, it's always about giving thanks or being or re reflecting on that grace. But when God graces us, he does something that we'll never earn or deserve. And I've said it, I've said it a gazillion times. This is the only basis for us to speak about God. This is what every message in this pulpit is really about, is what God is doing in Christ Jesus through us or his grace. I heard a pastor recently say that grace is on, sometimes it's unmerited favor. And sometimes it's, uh, it's when you're, um, a, um, you're, you're doing God's works and, and there's this, there's, you're in a state of grace. It's all God's work. It's all his, his, his energy, his um, work, his initiative and our benefit. And that includes the works that we do. It's all grace works when you walk in obedience to God. I have friends that will say that if we overemphasize obedience, if we talk about it, they don't like the language of God commands us and we obey because we're not saved by works, but by grace. That's called theology, not benefiting from the Bible. That's not reading the text of scripture and just letting it speak to you because there are more commands to Christians in the New Testament than commands in the Mosaic law. We're commanded constantly and it's impossible commands. Love one another as I've loved you. Rejoice again always. I say rejoice as Paul says in chains. Rejoice in your, in your afflictions. Th these, are, these are things that require supernatural enablement. And that's what I mean. It's God's grace that even works in us. But we are to be unto the praise of the glory of God's grace with which that grace, he graced us. That's this word, caritao. Um, he graced us in the beloved in Christ. And... So verse seven, in whom, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Redemption means the salvation we are gonna to celebrate today in the Lord's table. The redemption is the purchase of us from the slave market of sin. And so it is the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You are not forgiven of your sins because you repent of them. You're not, it doesn't work. It's not good enough. What does repent mean? It means to change your mind anyway in the Bible. Repentance of sin is not salvation from sin. You had to have Jesus Christ actually pay for your sins on the cross. Do you need to change your mind about sin? Yes. And the first one is self-righteousness that we're good enough on our own to please God. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins and we empty and empty handedly come to that gift of salvation and forgiveness of our sins and receive it by faith. The, the gospel is not give up everything. The gospel is Jesus Christ died for your sins. He gave up everything to get you. And having been saved by grace through faith, recognize everything you have and own is really God's because he just bought you. Coming to realize that I'm his and 
Therefore, my life is hidden with Christ and God. Yeah, everything is like goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. But you don't tell an unbeliever, you will first of all get rid of everything. But Jesus told the rich young ruler to get rid of everything. The rich young ruler had a specific question and Jesus was teaching him because he was not receiving by faith the son. He didn't believe in Jesus. He thought he was keeping the law and his repentance was of self-righteousness. And Jesus showed him where he wasn't righteous. He worshiped wealth. See, it's very simple. God has righteousness. We don't. We need God's righteousness. You get it by faith. Jesus died for your sins. You trust only in him. But I was being good. That's not it. But, um, but I, I come to church. That's not it. But, but, but the, the, there's got to be something that I can do to just help out a little bit. Let me invite him in. I'll invite Jesus into my heart. Misappropriating Revelations 3.21. Not about a person coming to Christ as Savior. About a church that is out of fellowship with God and needs to have him come back in to dine with them. Hey, hey, Laodicea, I'm outside knocking on your church's door, as it were. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Is talking to a church that's about to be snuffed out and not have its candle burning anymore. That's, that's Revelation 3. See, there's nothing we do to receive this grace that comes alone from God and except by faith. And we're headed towards Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which explicitly states it. In verse 8, which grace he abundantly overflowed, perisuo. Let me put that back in black and white. Which grace he abundantly overflowed to us. That's not good English lavished on us well this word perisuo means to pour till it breaks over the over the dam and this is what and the referent to that word that that is that god overflowed to you is his grace there is no greater thing you can reflect on than god's grace to you there's nothing greater for you in this life and you already have it well, I don't really feel that. I don't feel like this is the greatest thing. Well, you haven't learned to hope only in Christ. You haven't learned that your only hope, that your only expectation of good things is Jesus Christ. It's a process, and this is something you should ask God for. Maybe you don't feel it yet. Keep reflecting on what's being said here. I mean, to the extent that Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and the riches of God's grace is irrelevant to your life and how you feel about God and about yourself and about others to the extent that it's irrelevant to your inner thought life and your mood and your daily rejoicing to the extent that this is irrelevant to you is to the extent that you're still just an infant in Jesus Christ. And you have to get into what God is telling you to understand the riches that you have because God has taken an interest in you. This is, this is heavy, wonderful riches but I don't feel wealthy when I think about my salvation in Christ. It's because you are in a habit of neglecting your so great salvation. You're like the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter five that aren't ready for meat and they still have to drink milk and all that. And, and if that's where you are, okay, that's okay. Here's what I want to tell you about that. Have you ever, uh, have you ever become a runner? Anybody here ever learned to run once upon a time? As, as um, Stephen Tyler once said, there once was a time when I could run. I used to run and I liked doing it. I was not built to be a runner, but a runner built me, being a runner built me into being able to be a boxer at least for one semester. All right. When I would run, um, I would always try to plan for how fast I would run and how long it would take me to do 
the 3.2 miles out to Lee Gate and back from MacArthur Barracks up, in, uh, up at West Point. I would, try, I would try to say, I'm going to do this in so many minutes. And I would say, okay, this is the pace I need to run. I even had a, a watch that would tell me how, you know, what my pace needed to be. And when I first started running um, uh, there, after, uh, I don't know, some time off, coming back from leave or something, I would notice something about my plans of how fast I could run. What do you think I would notice? I, I wasn't uh, able to do it and be comfortable. It was, it, was too, it was too hard. It was uncomfortable for me to try to keep that pace and it started to hurt. And I mean, unnecessarily hurt where at some point you hurt bad enough and you do what? You quit. You're a fifth grader, right? Headed to fifth grade. And you're trying to do seventh grade math. And you, you kind of understand the first 20 minutes of the lecture, but then you're like, I, I have, I, and you quit. And you're like, I, I, I can't do it. You're going to try to keep this, this, you know, seven minute mile pace or whatever. I'm not a seven minute mile runner yet. So instead of quit, let's assume that quitting is not an option because it's not. Okay. It's not an option. We're not quitters. We're not a canters. Okay. We can do all things that God wants us to do through the one who strengthens us. So, so what should we do if we can't keep that pace? What, what would be a better choice than quitting? Ask God for help. What? Yeah, definitely. I wouldn't call it lowering my expectations, but I get where you're coming from. But you're right. You slow down and you wouldn't quit. See, that's one of the great lessons in life. You don't quit. You just recognize where you are and you, and you slow down a little bit. It's okay. The most awful thing in the world is say, ah, Christianity's hard. The Bible's hard. Ephesians one is hard. I quit. It's, it's horribly uh, self-defeating. You know what's amazing? Slow it down, finish the run, go all those 3.2 miles in the sun, but now it's hot. But now my, my muscles ache in a different way because I've slowed down and it hurts differently. Just keep it up, just stay with it. As long as you're bending your knees a certain degree, I call it running, okay? As long as there's that, in, that split second between one foot hitting the ground and the other foot leaving the ground, We'll call it running. I mean, I've could, I can run slower than I can walk, right? Or I used to could, back before the back. Now, what happens if you actually see it through and you put yourself through the rigors at your level? Do you know what happens when you're trying to learn to run? Do you know what happens? See, we're so like, get it now, get it now, get it now. And we don't think about, wait, what's going to happen 48 hours from now? How's this going to be affecting me a week from now? What's it going to be like a month from now? We don't think about that. We just think, oh, I want to build a city right now. It doesn't work. But if you do that work and you see it through and you actually do the work at the pace you can do it, guess what happens? Do you know what happens? Samuel, do you know what happens? You get better fast you get exponentially better. You get improvements you can't believe. The problem isn't that Christianity hasn't been tried. The problem is that we quit and we don't see it through and let the growth happen and get some exponential growth. It comes, it does come. I've had several things where I've learned this. You, you, you couldn't quite handle that eighth, ninth grade math in fifth grade. So we dial it down to where you are, but you spend the time and you do what you can do. And you find that by the time you're in, seventh, eighth grade, the math at your level is actually, uh, 
I, I can eat faster than they're serving it. And you get some momentum and you grow. And this is the nature of Christian growth. And God knows this. God knows this. And so um, I just want to encourage you that uh, don't quit on the, the concentration piece. Don't quit on the going for God's depth and what he's teaching you about your riches in Christ. In fact, if you're not feeling, you know, rejoice, joy and, and wealth over what God's telling you in Ephesians chapter one, okay, hold on, hold on. It's coming. It, you just have to grow into an appreciation. It's, it's like a baby surrounded in a treasure room by gold. Scrooge McDuck's treasure room, baby crawling around, has no idea what he has. That's what we are when we don't understand and appreciate what God is doing. But here it says, with the grace that he's given us, he abundantly overflowed unto us in all wisdom and insight. It's a, it's a fragment sentence, not even the complete sentence. But this grace that he gave us, he abundantly, God the Father abundantly overflowed to us in all wisdom and insight. And now this conversation is going to take a turn. The nature of the riches of God's grace to you is propositional. It's thinking, it's truth, it's him telling you what he's doing and what your, what your future is. It's not the sailboat. It's not the, the mortgage. It's not the, the thing. It's not the job. It's not the thing that you, those are all means to an end, except for the sailboat, unless you're in Paul headed to Malta or something. But what, the details of life is not what he's talking about. He's talking about the focus of life in all wisdom and insight by making known to us the mystery of his will. There's the riches of divine grace. He made known to us the mystery of his will. Mystery means it's not known unless someone opens the, the, the curtains and reveals it. That's what the word mystery is talking about. The mystery is that which you cannot know unless God opens it up to you. And he's saying, we, the apostles, Paul, we have this. And he's made known to us. And so through this apostolic deposit, which you're reading right now, you are being introduced into the treasure vault. That's what he's talking about. The riches of the grace of God that he's made known to you with all wisdom and insight, the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention. Again, eudokia, his good pleasure, or his, I think, good, kind, good toward you, kind intention, which he set forth in Christ in colors. The dark blue are the things that God has done by making known to us. Now, what's the complete part of this thought? This grace he abundantly overflowed unto us in all wisdom and insight by making known to us the mystery of his will. I don't want to know about Christian eschatology. Well, you're just cutting yourself off from your riches. You're neglecting your so great salvation. And this is where Christians are. We don't know our eschatology. We don't know where things are going. We don't know, therefore, our purpose. And so we don't know what we should be doing here and now in view of what's coming then. But that's what he's doing here. He's giving you that deposit of revelation so that you will know what to do with yourself. And this mystery of God's will is according to God's kind intention, which he set forth in Christ and set forth that prototheme probably is talking about um, displayed. He set forth for you to see 
because he's talking about making known to us in, in Revelation. And so if you have Jesus and you have the word of Jesus through the apostles, which we're hearing now from Paul, then you have the revelation of the mystery of God's will that is in Christ. And so it's not just that I love Jesus and Jesus loves me, not just that he died for me and rose from the dead. It's not just that I share his destiny. It's all of these things which he's making known through the apostles and none of them would be known to us without the apostles. Hey, we're making some good time here. In verse 10, unto the administration. Now, what is the unto? He set forth this kind intention, this mystery of God's will, which is unto the administration of the fullness of times. I've always struggled with the fullness of the times. What's he talking about? The fullness of the times. He is not talking about the church age. I used to think he's talking about what we're dealing with now. It's not the completeness, the fullness. That's not now. It's what's coming. It's what we're in preparation for. You're not there. We're saved. We're getting the doctrine. We're growing. No, no. You're getting doctrine of, from Paul, from the Lord th through Paul, so that you grow, so that you serve, so that you are trained, so that in your life experience here under pressure, you are ready to receive the responsibility that he has for you in what's coming in the, the administration or even the dispensation of the fullness of the times, which is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. I think when he says the things in heaven and the things on the earth, I think he's making an allusion to uh, Isaiah 65 and 66. I think we have this at the end of the book of Revelation. This is not the millennium. That's the first thousand years of the kingdom. It's the new heavens and new earth. It's the end state. All things are summed up in Christ. And you say, wait, wait, Jesus gives the kingdom to the father. Yeah, Jesus under the father is ruling over this eternal kingdom of Messiah forever and ever and ever. And, and see, the fullness of glory dwells in the son bodily. And that's what we hear in Colossians. And so I believe what Paul is talking about is the end state for which you and I right now are being groomed, trained, developed, matured. So much bigger than sit and listen, take your notes, grow by believing the word. I mean, that's all part of mechanically part of what we're supposed to do, but to what end? to what he's talking about. This is with a view to the administration, the fullness of the times, the summing up of all things in Christ and things in heaven and the things on earth. And so this is part of the heavenly things that are set up for you because of your position in Christ. He's blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. When Jesus teaches this, I mean, quiz you from yesterday, boys. When Jesus in Matthew 6 says, uh, uh, store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. What is the nature of heavenly treasure that he's pointing to? It can't be broken in and stolen. It can't be, it can't be rusted away. What aspect of heavenly treasure is he talking about? What sense of it? What's the value to it that he's addressing? It is eternal life, but what's, what's the aspect of this? See, we have great conversations. I ask an impossible question and then we have a long discussion and they learn something and I learn something. What aspect of your eternal reward is he talking about when he says that thieves can't break it and steal it and moths can't destroy it? It's secure. He's talking about whatever this treasure is, it's permanent. The moth and rust and stuff on earth that you can't take it with you. That's a message about its impermanence. 
you know, build the biggest city and glorify yourself to the max and get the biggest bank account and you, you don't take it with you when you die. It's a waste because it's temporary. Rich Solomon in his old age says everything's a vapor. Life is meaningless because it's temporary. Go for something permanent. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the permanence and what's coming. He is eschatological in this, and he is definitely revealing the mystery of the church through Ephesians, the high pinnacle of his teaching. And the church is an eschatological people with an eschatological purpose. That means an end times purpose. And, and this is something we take out and reflect on and rejoice in. In verse 11, in him, in Jesus Christ, in whom also we've received an inheritance because we've been appointed beforehand. Your Bible might say predestinated, but appointment is the issue. Appointed beforehand, according to the purpose of him who is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And so back to the father uh, who's doing all this for us in Christ. We've received an inheritance. The blessing we're talking about is this inheritance because we have been appointed beforehand according to God's purpose. Whose purpose? The Father's purpose. And what's he doing? He's working all things after the counsel of his will. When we as fallen and sinful humans are offended that God is working everything after his preferences, that's one of the challenges people stumble over in the Bible. We are arrogant and we don't want God to have his way. We want to have our way. Here's what happens if God has his way, nothing but good, joy, love, peace, and grace. Here's what happens if we in our sinful natures have our way. Chaz up on, in Seattle. When we have our way, we do something stupid, self-destructive. We kill the golden goose every single time. And let me give you an example. One of my favorite contemporary examples. The problem is the burgers. Not the cholesterol. I'm talking about the problem economically is the burgers. It's the bourgeoisie, the, the middle class. They're the problem because they don't have what the wealthy one percenters have, but they keep them in power and force the working class down. We've got to destroy the middle class. Well, that's a good prescription for a ridiculous police state and command economy and Stalinism that ends up with, uh, I don't know, one or two brands of toothpaste. I like the variety of toothpaste options. I think it's nice. I like the fact that every different box of toothpaste represents thousands of jobs. And there's a market that no one can control except God himself. And that's the alternative to this idiotic command economy once you've killed your middle class. Some of you are like, um, I needed the break, but I have no idea what you're talking about. And I understand. But what I'm saying is we and our own devices always end up, the counsel of our will will be something bad. Lord Acton, you know, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely because we're, we're corrupted in ourselves is what he means. Well, not with God. When God works everything that he's doing after the counsel of his will, there's nothing but good news. This is something to kick up your heels and rejoice about like the 1980s Toyota commercials. This is just awesome, awesome news. So that, so he's working all things after the counsel of his will so that we would be under the praise of his glory. What are we here for? We're here to be for the praise of God's glory. That's your purpose. And it's not just any old way that you want to bring glory to God. He's got a way that it actually happens. It's called his protocol. It's his system and it's through his revelation. And you know what his system is? Personal interaction through communication. 
That's one of the key facets of this. If you spend time with him in prayer on the basis of what he's told you in his word, you are communicating. And what God designed you for in that transaction is spiritual growth, is a growing rapport and love for God. This is the application of this. But we are called to be unto the praise of God's glory, we who were the first to hope in Christ. So Paul is this first generation, and these Ephesians are the follow-ons who are to follow in Paul's example. That's what he means by the first to hope in Christ. So that we would be to the praise of his glory, we who are the first to hope in Christ. One of the benefits of God's riches of divine grace in this passage is that we have a purpose, that we are able to praise God. Have you ever thought about the magnificence of God's perfect, unstained righteousness? Have you ever thought about how his perfect righteousness compares to our filthy rags righteousness, our sinfulness? Even the good things we do are filthy rags in his sight. Have you thought about the contradiction between us and God? And yet he persists and lets this continue and send his son to die for us. I mean, when you think about the distinction, doesn't that cause you a little bit of concern about opening your mouth and praise to him? Isaiah sees God in Isaiah chapter six, and he's like, I, I, I can't sing what these angels are singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of the armies. The fullness of the earth is his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of, the, of hosts. The fullness of the earth is his glory. These seraphim, these burning ones, these six-winged angels are singing back and forth in the holy throne room of God. And what does Isaiah immediately think? I'm dirty. I'm dirty. This is the commissioning of Isaiah and God is calling him to go speak for him, to glorify him by revealing God to the nation. That's what Isaiah is called to do. But he's dirty and he immediately sees it. I can't sing what these angels sing. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And I hear holy words from these holy angels and I can't join because I'm unclean. And what does, and do you know what happens? One of the angels says, oh yeah, you can join us. He goes to the altar. He grabs a coal from the fire and he touches it to Isaiah's lips, demonstrating in this vision what he says, you, you've been cleansed. You've been cleansed. And then God says, I need someone to go as a messenger to speak for me, who will speak for me. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And that's the call of Isaiah. You can read it in Isaiah chapter six. He's not clean. He knows it in the presence of God. What does he do about it? What does Isaiah do about his uncleanness? He confesses his sin and the sin of his people. I am an unclean, I have unclean lips. I'm a sinner by how he confesses and then he's cleansed. Notice the pattern you find throughout the Bible. You confess your sins, God cleans you up. But the reason the angel, I'm convinced, goes and ministers to him is partly because the angels are ministering spirits, but also because Isaiah is now invited to join their song to glorify God, which is our purpose. What an honor to be able to do this and what a high calling that we're not really equipped to do. Does your mouth curse and bless with the same mouth? Do you have trouble controlling your tongue? Of course we do. Is is, is uh, the words of James 3 echoing through us now that, you know, that word perfect, a perfect man bridles his tongue. He's talking about spiritual maturity, the ability to control because you know your purpose. There's your secret, by the way. It's a purpose problem. Your mouth is not designed to glorify you, to promote you, to advance you, to put down others, to, to, to do anything but to glorify God. And when you recognize the tool's purpose, you start to use it for what it's designed for. And that's a factor in your maturity. What is your purpose? That we would be to the praise of God's glory. We who were the first to hope in Christ. 
and verse 13, and we're almost done with our long sentence in whom in Jesus in whom also you, after hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, by which also after believing you were sealed in the Holy spirit of promise, not a period at the end of that in Jesus also you, after you heard the word of truth, it's explicit after hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, by which also after believing you were sealed in the Holy Spirit. When do you get sealed by the Holy Spirit? When is the sealing of the Spirit where you're marked as God's forevermore? When you first believe, after believing. Does it happen before you believe? Will you be receive the Holy Spirit before believing? No. You will have the impact of the Holy Spirit, which is abiding on the world to convict it of sin and righteousness and judgment. You will have an enabling of the Spirit in terms of the spiritual information of the gospel, but you will not be sealed until after believing you'll be sealed by the Spirit of promise. This is one of my most, um, uh, my great, big, biggest objections I have to the reform system is they believe that you have to be regenerated and receive the Holy Spirit before you can believe in Christ. And that's a logical, not theological, or it's a logical, not biblical deduction. It, it, it's based on their reasoning of how total depravity interfaces with faith. And I mean, it could be that way, except for things like this, which after believing you were sealed by the Holy, in the Holy Spirit of promise. And that sealing, what does that mean? It means, hey, look up here. The fact that you first believing, have, having believed were sealed in the spirit means that you've been marked off as God's by the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Now in Galatians, we're told the Holy Spirit came in our hearts to abide for how long? Ever. The blank there, fill in it forever. He's in us for, we're sealed by the spirit. His presence in us seals us or marks us as God's forever. It's like the seal that someone puts on a letter in, in wax. That's what we're talking about. You're marked by the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. And there's more to that. That marking is an earnest. He says in verse 14, who the Holy Spirit, who is in an earnest or a down payment of our inheritance. That word arabon means inheritance, uh, a portion of the inheritance, an earnest. You haven't been given the full uh, give, the full deposit of inheritance. You've been given the earnest, the down payment of our inheritance. Let me do some theological deductions. Why do you have the Holy Spirit in you elsewhere, like in the same book in Ephesians chapter five? So it'll fill you so that you will know the will of God so that you will speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. You'll uh, do all things in the name of the Father and all, in, the, in the name of the Son and giving thanks to the Father that you'll um, submit one to another in fear of Christ and husbands will love their wives and so forth. Actually, it starts off with wives submitting to their husbands, but all the household things, right? The reason the Holy Spirit lives in you is to fill you and make you characterized by the character of Christ. Ephesians chapter four, that, um, that your gifts uh, actuated by the Spirit build up the body of Christ. We have lots of statements about purpose of the Spirit, but I believe we can summarize it and say everything that God wants me to do, he's going to do through me by his grace and the power of his Holy Spirit. I think that's the, the nature of the Holy Spirit living in you. And so Jesus pioneered our spiritual life and his humanity empowered by the Spirit. You, not as a prophet with direct revelation from God, but in your way, you are doing what you do in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, what does the power of God to accomplish what he wants you to do have to do with your inheritance, the earnest, the down payment, the beginning of the give, the beginning of the deposit of the inheritance? What does it say if you've already received the Holy Spirit, who is the earnest of the fullness of the inheritance? I'd say that there's some of that inheritance that is in question, like in Colossians 3.24, the reward 
which is the inheritance, the reward of the inheritance, the spiritual rewards that are on deposit for you, but have not been conveyed because you have to grow, because you have to serve. And so I think that you need to connect the work of the Holy Spirit to the presence of the Spirit in your life as the seal to the earnest. And I'm not saying they're all the same ministries. I'm saying there's a connection between inheritance and rewards, which is often downplayed or misunderstood. And this is unto the redemption of the possession, unto the praise of his glory. The redemption of the possession is your resurrection body and revelation to the earth. This is the final end state. So if you've been watching the orange orange text through this, there's an observation that'll start to rise up as you'll start to think this through. The orange stuff is what God gives you through Jesus Christ. And most of it, if not all of it, is what's coming. It's all looking forward. We Christians are eschatological. We're end times people looking at the end state, doing what we do now under pressure. Pressure is coming to an end. Eternity is service to God in a glorified body. And it is always and always and always, look up here, I lied. It's always unto the praise of God's glory. Why are you here? To glorify God. In what way? The way we've just described, this is, the, this is the, the riches of divine grace. So it includes your spiritual life. It includes what happened when you first believed in Christ and all that uh, is, is yours that's on deposit. It includes the giving of the Holy Spirit. And I believe what he's in you to do, which is to, to equip you for all that God has for you. And this is the long sentence in Ephesians chapter one. Uh, we've done in two hours what I would like to do in two years. And so uh, the question is, did we do it? What we did was we, we summarized. What's this final summary? I'll finalize it this way. The more you and I want to praise God, the more we need to think about what he, God the Father, is doing through God the Son on our behalf, the grace we receive through him. And not to do this is to neglect our so great salvation. If we want to praise God, if we want to understand God as he is, if we want to really worship him, we need to do it in light of all that he's doing and done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we turn our attention with the Lord's table in one moment. Let me close us uh, this portion with a word of prayer of, of thanksgiving. Our Father, we thank you for fellowship and with you and sharing your things together with you that we've learned in Ephesians chapter one. Father, they're challenging. They've always been challenging. We have been lisping, we little children, little babies in your lap. We've been lisping your truth back to you. Um, since these things were said 2,000 years ago. And uh, we don't fully, we can't fully grasp the magnificent riches here, but you can open our hearts more and more to understand. You can give us that spirit of, of revelation and insight and understanding to really know what, what are these riches that you've told us about here. And uh, Father, I know the reason you gave them to us. I know exactly why you've given us this revelation so that we'd praise you so that we would be for your praise and glory. Don't let us fall short of that high calling. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.